Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, hosted by Josh Abatoy and Tymon Klein. Our mission is to promote a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day, rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. All right, welcome back, everybody, to the American Reformer podcast. Uh, usual co-hosts here, Josh Abatoy, executive director, is with me, and I'm Timon Klein, editor-in-chief. And we're joined today by our special guest and friend, Orrin McIntyre, who has a book coming out that many of you have probably heard of um, and are looking forward to called Total State, How Liberal Democracies Turn Into... T- I already messed it up, Orrin. I'm sorry. Turn Into Tyranny? Yes. Okay. And it's uh, it's out May 7th, um, so everyone should be looking for that and, and get their pre-orders in. Uh, but if you're not convinced to do so, maybe you will be after you've heard us talk about it a little bit. Um, many of you are probably familiar with Oren uh, because of his work at The Blaze, uh, his regular columns there, and uh, most likely his podcast, which, Oren, how long have you been doing a, your, your own podcast? It seems like for a while, but I'm, I'm not sure exactly. I started doing the YouTube before I was even on Twitter that I got onto Twitter to to tell people about my YouTube channel. And I was doing, I guess what you could call a podcast there, but I didn't actually launch like the podcast onto things like Apple or anything until I joined the blaze. So a little over a year. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, And and many of you may have seen or in also doing a a back to your, would that be Iowa when you were doing some of the, um, the election analysis. Yeah. Yeah. When we were at the, the when they there, had yeah. the, uh, the town hall where uh, Tucker was, hall, yeah. uh, was interviewing every yes. candidate. An, ama- an amazing event. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, but Oren, thanks for coming on. And um, maybe, maybe just give everybody um, a little bit of background too, of how you got to where you are um, for those of you that are unfamiliar. Uh, sure. I started out um, as a, journalist. Well, I, I studied politics in college. I ended up teaching for a little while, and then I kind of fell backwards into uh, kind of just local journalism. I was writing for a paper doing doing politics and crime uh, for a couple of different local publications. And I kind of noticed that things weren't working the way I learned about them. You know, when I, I'd done a little work in Republican politics, it just the, the seeing behind the curtain of the media machine kind of said told me that there was something going on that I didn't understand and then you know uh, 2020 election happened and nothing worked the constitution didn't seem to work uh you know the lockdowns the craziness the riots uh and that that kind of sent me on a journey of trying to figure out uh, you know okay if politics doesn't really work the way that I had learned about it how does it actually work and that that's when I started reading a lot of uh, people who were outside the mainstream, uh, older political theorists that that I'd never heard of before, and I started talking about it on YouTube and uh, you know talking about it on Twitter, and that's how I ended up doing what I'm doing now. Excellent. Yeah, I I always recommend your podcast to people that um, when they ask me, you know, how do how do I get into sort of I hear people talking about different authors and different concepts, but I'm you know you obviously don't read this stuff in school, as you said. We could call it sort of dissident literature, but it's most of it's actually older, right? It's not it's not new or been produced over the past few years. Um, and I usually direct them to your your podcast because you've had you've had several series on um, you know covering different thinkers, uh, whether it's you know Schmidt or Dugan or uh, these kinds of, of of authors. So um, it's very uh, much of your podcast is is educational, not just you know touching on current events, although you do that as well. Um, but we want to, but we want to talk about the book. Um, so tell us a little bit about, uh, why you wrote this book and basically what it's about. Yeah. Like I said, it really, the, the book is just kind of the pulling together of all the things I've learned in the last few years as I've gone on this journey. It's really about kind of my, my intellectual crisis. I was, I'm a basic talk radio conservative, you know, neocon leanings. The, the kind of guy who, you know, just just absorbed all of the things you would get from Fox News and the the normal talking heads. 
And I, I had that kind of bog standard worldview for a long time. And so when I started watching the fact that the Constitution actually didn't stop any kind of government overreach, that actually the, the government would just shut down churches and they would just lock people in their homes and no one would do anything. And nothing, you know, there, all, all these protections that I had learned about that were built into the Bill of Rights, they, all these checks and balances, all these stop gaps against tyranny, they, they really meant nothing. And I was just kind of blown away in my entire my entire foundation about what America was and how we were protected and you know all of these things was just completely shattered. And so the the book kind of it walks through that journey and all of these different thinkers that I engaged with and how they explain that the different things that we believe about uh, democracy and its ability to limit the government aren't actually the case. That actually democracy is a proven uh, way to expand the authority of the government, to expand its reach, to expand its mandate, that, that uh, an increasement of the franchise is actually just uh, always correlated with a larger and more powerful government. Uh, many of the, why many of the checks and balances, the different constitutional safeguards that were supposed to be built in, this complicated Rube Goldberg machine that was supposed to just give us a neutral government that was all, only there to, to protect our natural rights as enumerated in the Constitution, why that architecture didn't work, and, and why ultimately the politics that we're seeing today is not very new, but it's actually very old. It's a reemergence of what we would expect if we were actually familiar with history, if we were familiar with the nature of mankind, if we were familiar with a lot of this stuff. And what we're really seeing is that society doesn't scale, that the things that we have done to uh, kind of remove the barriers to the free flows of things like capital and labor and uh, you know the, the normalization and homogenization of cultures and peoples, all of that stuff actually breaks down the things that actually control government, that actually give us liberty, that actually protect us from overreach. And all of the things that we were told that we're going to mechanically do that, they don't do that unless the people are invested in a very particular way of life. And so The Total State is really a book following the, the, the why these things didn't protect us and the development of our current ruling class. Many people will call them the, the managerial elite and why they have come to dominate us in this time of kind of the mass man, the mass society. Right. So uh, on your, you know, in your understanding um, is, you know, people may, may wonder, are you, you know, are you arguing that um, these, these issues, the, the crises that we're now facing are sort of endemic to the structure um, of our constitutional order is, you know, some in a, in a grad seminar, we may sit around and, and talk about how it's supposed to be and what it's supposed to do, that it was always the case or that it's the, you know, the, the particular personnel that now occupy it um, and have occupied it for some time, have used it as a vehicle to create something, you know, that wasn't intended, obviously, and that, that didn't necessarily have to happen. And, and they're the ones that have used it to erode the homogeneity and the, the the sort of prerequisites for good governance. I'm actually uh, I'm actually arguing a third option, which is that uh, the problem we're facing is not that we were hijacked by a uh, kind of a, in a rogue elite that is not uh, interested in our well being, though that is true, and not that the Constitution in and of itself was going to create the society we have now, though there are certain parts of it that we could probably say have you know some liability to that but actually the, the the argument i'm making is that scale is the enemy of civilization mm -hmm. and that ultimately we cannot expand the culture of a people the tradition of the people infinitely without losing the mm -hmm. nature of the people and so we hear this this idea of exporting democracy everyone was familiar with this kind of language from the global war on terror the idea that you know, we would that George Bush would go out there and he would just make sure that everybody in the Middle East, uh, you know, had a liberal democracy and that the entire world was going to change in this way. And we find that actually that's just a stand in for we want to install our managerial bureaucracy. We want to expand our empire across all of these different nations. And some of them will simply reject it because not all of these countries can or want to or should be governed in this way. 
In fact, this way of being is particular to a type of people and a tradition and a culture mm -hmm. which values it. And so we could have perhaps a constitutional republic as long as we are keeping it you know, isolated to the United States. And, and, you know, but, but if we continue to scale these things, if we continue to bring them out to peoples and places that were uninterested in them, we're naturally going to invite the expansion of a managerial elite that create a global mm -hmm. spanning empire that is basically sucking the United States dry and turning it into a tyranny. And I think it's pretty obvious to people at this point that that is actually the process we're undergoing. Yeah, I was I was on a yeah, there's a, oh, there's ahead, a two Josh. way street that happens in this process, right? Because the the government is becoming sort of more um, ambivalent about its um, its sort of national interests as it transforms into an imperial uh, government. It's the interests that it's seeking to maximize are no longer sort of the interests of the American people, but they're the interests of some larger you know, set of um, imperial participants. And on the flip side, the citizen is less loyal to the government, right? The citizen goes from viewing the government as a legitimate representative government of the American people to viewing it as a um, sort of a commercial exchange partner. You know, you remain in, in that um, mm -hmm. imperial bargain so long as it remains uh, sort of convenient. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and then... Um, you know, so this 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 essentially re significantly reduces the the reciprocal loyalty that would typically flow both directions in sort of a a healthy smaller nation state. Yeah, and I I was on a uh, I, I was talking with our friend Ben Crenshaw yesterday about this actually on a different podcast, and we've talked about this before too, Josh. That you know, in, in this question of scale, the problem of scale was one that was you know was there basically from the beginning. I mean, you can read. Lots of the the founders even you know expressing their anxieties over this very issue, and that was back when you had what three million people, and prior to the Northwest Ordinance and, and westward expansion, and they're already worried about this because they know that scale will um, obviously it's going to invite more people who are not going to immediately be integrated, and then there's going to be a problem of homogeneity and just pure governance in a practical matter as you occupy greater and greater space. Um, and even at the beginning, there al there's already people referring to the entire project as, you know, a, a sort of domestic empire, which is, which is, I think, is an accurate way to describe us now, certainly. Um, but at that time, it was some, in some ways more positive because the idea was, well, we have essentially 13 nations that are all very agreeable, uh, independent republics, very agreeable, but small and at least homogenous on the inside from their perspective. Um, now that seems to have been, you know, through, it's kind of funny that through the assertion of extreme unity and nationhood at scale has actually led to the dissolution of any kind of unity. Whereas if you had maintained this idea that you are, you're actually sort of a confederacy, a large empire over, over several nations, you could have maintained um, more homogeneity and more unity. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, Oren, do you think, do, do you yeah. think that the... Um... The, the United States sort of just, if you look at it as a continent, is of itself sort of definitionally an empire. Like, do you think that, you know, wrapped up in the Manifest Destiny was an inevitability that we would become an empire rather than a nation that could have a functioning republic? Or do you think it's sort of the overseas adventurism? I think that the your, the the former is, is correct. I think that the you are always, because of this constant drive for expansion, uh, this this need to always, rather than to conform and form one nation, but rather instead to move away from each other and expand whenever there's a disagreement, meant that you were always kind of bound to have this imperial mindset. The United States never really properly underwent an ethnogenesis because it's just the geographic space and the constant desire to expand meant that many of your cultures were able to isolate themselves almost immediately from each other, and people lived very different lives across the United States. They certainly had a shared identity to some extent as Americans, but people in California were living a radically different life from people in, you know, uh, in North Carolina or, or Maine. And so these were, these were radically different peoples in many ways, and they never really formed a one united idea of, of what they would be. They were held together by this general uh, American identity, uh, uh, particularly 
Protestant Christian uh, kind of ethic that that allowed uh, the extreme federalism of the United States to to still kind of operate everything under one banner. But but you never really had that that complete level of unity that I think a lot of people would understand. You know, if if the United States obviously was in a place like Europe, it would have been several different nations. It would not it would not have been one unified one. And I think there's also uh, an inevitability to any great power will at some at some level become an empire. I think empires actually are the natural uh, organizing uh, kind of principle of of, of a mm-hmm. of a larger world. Uh, which is something that's di- probably difficult for a lot of people who are aiming at uh, na- uh, kind of nationalism right now to to grapple with. Uh, but what we're seeing is that the United States, in many ways, became an imperial power because it needed to to keep pace. And we saw this with many different nations, especially approaching World War One, where they realized, well, we we need to go ahead and you know get get colonies. We need to secure. We need to get in on this uh, this global imperialism because if we don't do it, someone else is going to. And this arms race of, of government centralization and scale, uh, you can't fall behind. That That's one of the arguments I make in the book is that uh, w- one of the reasons we were driven towards this is that power naturally wants to grow and it naturally needs to keep uh, at pace with its neighbors or will be conquered. It will eventually fall to those, you know, if your neighbor gets the levee en masse, if they're able to mass conscript an entire army and, you know, if they get tanks, they get nuclear weapons, you have to do the same. You have to maintain Parity and the ability to to do this on a mass scale requires the ability to basically have a large mandate from your people, which is why democracy, uh, liberal democracy, became the most common uh, government for people who were wanting to kind of generate this level of control of the populace. Again, I, I don't think liberal, liberal democracy is a freeing of the populace. I think it's a reason for the government to then need to indoctrinate everyone in, in the populace. And so I think that in order for us to to simply compete on the world stage, we were going to have to push this direction. I think, unfortunately, a lot of the the founders knew that, and there was a big struggle uh, between more of the you know, uh, Hamiltonian wing and and the Jeffersonian wing, uh, uh, whether we should participate in that race. But that race was going to exist mm-hmm. whether we participated in it or not. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you had a you had a good I think this was recent, or and you can correct me if I'm wrong. A good conversation with martyr made about uh that was long so it covered a lot of ground but it it touched on these same themes and also brought in uh, a lot of considerations about uh you know mass immigration just the way it played out in a very dispassionate way i think that's why it was helpful um and this was just you know much of what you're saying is the the external pressures of competition require that you grow in this way but then there were there were also it seems to me on your reading internal pressures that naturally happened that, that required the same. Correct. Again, if power wants to centralize, it needs to hollow out the middle, basically. If, if your power is naturally regional, it's especially, uh, you know, uh, first uh, feudal and then uh, bourgeoisie power, it's, it's distributed regionally. It's people who are reliant on communities uh, for institutions that are uh, isolated in their area to go ahead and maintain their civilizations. But to scale up, you need to uh, adopt a more bureaucratic uh, way of building governments. Gaetano Mosca is a political theorist, and he said basically all states oscillate between this uh, between this feudal and this bureaucratic setup. And in order to scale, to become more complex, eventually you must enter into the bureaucratic setup. And in order to go ahead and scale that power up, for the power to centralize more effectively, they need to go ahead and pull power away from those regional uh, concerns. You can't centralize power if people are still mostly reliant on their communities, because the thing that we have kind of lied to ourselves about is that we could all become individuals who are completely unreliant on others. We don't have to be reliant on our families. We don't have to be reliant on our churches. We don't have to be reliant on our communities or any politicians or anything like that. We can all be this highly functional, uh, functional libertarian individual, uh, the mm-hmm. Ayn Rand character who who never has to rely on anyone. But that's not true. In fact, uh, people will always need to rely on something. And if they don't rely on individual families and, and communities and churches, they will rely on the state. And so the state, in order to accrue power to itself, needs to go ahead and hollow out all those intermediate institutions, all those other social spheres that were taking over power, that were uh, giving people the things that they needed, that were relied upon. 
And so to do that, you need to go ahead and bring in people who are going to be reliant on you and, and uh, the, the government and not on any of those existing cultural or uh, traditions or institutions. And so that's where things like mass immigration are very useful because you can bring in a lot of people who don't immediately have jobs and don't immediately have communities and don't immediately have churches or other com uh, communal infrastructure that's local to them that they can rely on. And they're immediately entirely reliant on you. And you can promise to go ahead and displace the current population that you always need to get rid of the kulaks as the, as the Soviets did in order to go ahead and centralize power. And so it's a, a, a large uh, bit of what the mass immigration uh, thing does. It's the function that it needs to perform for the regime is to go ahead and hollow out that middle class, transfer their wealth away from uh, these, these regional institutions and powers. And instead, they can go ahead and be distributed to these people who are now complete clients of the centralized state. Yeah, it's one of it's one of the things that I, well, one of the many things I find incoherent about libertarians is you know they're 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 often Randians, but even if they're not Randians, they're high individualists. But they usually have an emphasis on strong localism and you know as small as small of units as you can have in governance. But it's always the case that it's easier to be an individual in the sense that they think of it um, under a centralized power. Um, than it is under a, a more localized and regional based power uh, because your your participation is not required in fact it's not it's not wanted um, you just need need compliance or or at least some kind of uh, you know neglect for for the things that are going on but what what to your mind I don't know if you go the, into this in the book you know there how is this um, how do you enforce this sort of mindset or consciousness because there is you know most people when they think of politics, um, it's entirely federal. It's national. That's all they pay attention to. Even as there is, um, there still exists many ways regionally and at a state level uh, for people to to do things. There's an immense. I mean, some governors are showing some of this at this point, but uh, people just don't have that that kind of gear in their consciousness anymore. There's no attention paid to it, even as their interests reside there. Well, I, I think the. The thing to remember, and this is, again, another point of the book over and over again, is that uh, the idea of popular sovereignty is a lie. No, no people can ever be sovereign yes. over themselves. That's not what the word sovereignty means. Um, and so the, the, from the very beginning, uh, most people who even who are actively you know, uh, practicing American politics uh, misunderstand how it actually works. Uh, uh, organized minorities rule us. That That is what uh, all power structures come down to. They are the organized minority, minority who rule over the disorganized majority. And so I don't think the average person is ever going to focus on, you know, changing politics. I don't think that's how politics works. I don't think how that's, that's how it's ever worked. And I don't think that's how it's going to work now. So the question is not, so much uh, when when do we get the average conservative or the average GOP voter to realize that they should be focusing on local elections? You don't. I mean, the, the way that you do this is you get a highly organized group of individuals to take over uh, regional political uh, power. And again, I think we're seeing that in places like Florida. The reason that Florida is able to do many of the things that it's doing is because uh, it has a level of organization, party organization. It has a a, a vigorous uh, executive who is willing to use power and is, it will will not be cowed by media or the challenges uh, that that are thrown at him by other forces. And is willing to tell, you know, most importantly, the federal government to go pound sand. Uh, and we saw the same thing with Greg Abbott. Um, you know, he's not had quite the same level of statewide uh, power. Uh, you know, the, the way that Ron DeSantis has established it, but his, his willingness to go ahead and tell the federal government the same thing on the border is critical. Uh, and so I think that we need to have, uh, you know, governors like this. I think uh, executives are, you know, state executives are a particularly important part of this formula. The legislatures are important. We need to capture those, uh, but they are not the ones that, that are probably going to drive the majority of this battle. They will follow uh, a vigorous executive uh, if they, they're willing to go ahead and operate in this manner. And uh, the way we get those is uh, is wins. Uh, people want to win. Greg Abbott is doing what he did because he watched Ron DeSantis do what he did. 
Um, and that's why I think Ron DeSantis is the most important person in the United States, exactly where he is as my governor in Florida, not as president, not because he probably wouldn't be a good <laughs> president, but because his ability to show what regional power can do and the way that it can uh, it can achieve huge things without having to trudge through the swamp in D.C. that is far more entrenched and far more powerful. I think lays out a blueprint for what red red states can actually do when they're organized. Yeah, we we all we didn't care for robot run. We like pork chop run back in, <laughs> back in Florida. As a resident of Florida, I can I can say I, I much prefer that the human run to be back, which he is. Um, but speaking of, of a, a vigorous executive, um, you know one of the one of the conversations on the the sort of right that's that's gone on, which you've been in involved in and and there's much confusion confusion over is you know this sort of caesarism idea uh we've we've written some on that um it seems to me it it's it's gotten it's been an odd conversation in terms of its reception because it's much less important that it's prescriptive rather than descriptive of yes. of what just happens and sort of these cycles of regimes which Josh is Josh took much flack on uh, but wrote about and I think took more flack on it after he wrote about it uh, at first things, but this sort of, um, you know, cycles of regimes of this is simply how, how, uh, the reactions play out typically. And there, there's of course debate over exactly what the transition between one form of government and another would be, or, or whether these are just sort of always elements that are in balance, in balance, sort of ebb and flowing. Um, and is so at the, at least at these more regional, it could end up being regional right now, there's signs of life at a state level. Um, is this the natural sort of cycle of, of regimes, given the uh, the conditions that that is playing out, or is this just a case of a, a couple guys being aggressive and that will that will sort of die with them? I think this is a, a cycle of regimes. Now, the interesting thing will be it's not a question of whether or not the United States will need to be guided by a firm hand. Uh, it's very clear. I mean, we we look at uh, we look at Joe Biden and. There is no more perfect kind of example uh, of what a weak fox-like, uh, you know, uh, tricky oligarchy wants to be as its figurehead. Joe Biden has, he's barely conscious. He doesn't know where he is. He takes all of the blame for what happens, and you don't know who's actually in charge in the United States. Literally, if you walk up to pretty much anyone in the United States and you ask them, Who's in charge of the United States right now? They don't know, and that's insane, right? That, that for for a, mm-hmm. a a government that prides itself for a people who pride itself on like the clarity of the of the Constitution and how obviously it sets up our powers and outlines our freedoms and 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 tells us how to hold leaders accountable. It is literally impossible for us to hold uh, leaders accountable right now. Nobody would know. Like, yeah, you can get rid of Joe Biden, but nobody believes he's really making decisions. No one really believes he's running this country, but no one knows who is. And that, that's an absolutely insane scenario. And we can see the consequences of that because there is no accountability, because the mechanisms that are supposed to uh, inform the way that we hold politicians accountable clearly just do not work in the current situation. Everything is coming apart. We're, we're having a competency crisis. We are in an, an insane amount of debt. We're, we're funding proxy awards across the globe on completely manufactured money. Uh, you know, we're, we're endangering every bit of our ability for energy and trade. We're destroying our social fabric. We're leaving our borders open. These are things, if, if you were to create a cabal of the enemies of the United States and tell them, make up a plan about how you would govern the United States if you wanted to destroy it, it's hard for them to come up with something any worse than what we're living through right now. And so it's very clear that we're not going to fix this problem by just like, I don't know, getting a slightly more based speaker of the house. Like, the, the, obviously, the, <laughs> that's just not the kind of situation we're in. Uh, so the question is not, will this will this figure arise? As you said, I think that that's inevitable. That's a cycle of, of the regime. What's going to break the power of the oligarchy? It is always the Caesar. That is that is something yeah. we see over and over again. But the question is, would the Caesar be national or will they be regional? Will the United States be able to hold together as an entity? Because we can't assume the empire is eternal. And so would it be that more competent regional leaders, you know, governors and things 
uh, kind of more natural partitions and smaller scales would be those which take over. I think that that that's a very real question that I think hasn't been answered yet. Well, I was I was at an event the other day that uh, where Newt Gingrich was speaking, and I thought it was going a really good direction because he he started talking about how you know it, it's just raw power. You have to think in terms of power and a zero sum game. You know, if they win, we lose, vice versa. I was like, okay. And then he was like, so you need to go out and vote. I was just like, wow, this is, that was incredibly depressing to just, you know, turn on, turn on a dime from what, what had so much potential to, you know, go, go apply the Band-Aid solution. Let's get a better speaker in. Let's, you know, we, we really need to hit the polls, guys. Primary that's, some that's of these guys, toss out those rhinos. Yeah, yeah. right, exactly. And, um, you know, all the while, it, no surprise that um, it, it was said that we must defeat Putin to avoid World War Three, And that was our that's our, our top priority right now. So it's just the you know, this this cognitive dissonance of, out of most of the, the right. Obviously, Newt represents much of the old guard, even if he was subversive for his day, is uh, extremely depressing and should cause people to um, rightly lose confidence in the national leadership. And I think, you know, look for opportunities to to gain the upper hand elsewhere um but do you think on the right you know apart from uh you know frog twitter or whatever that has um their eyes open is there energy to do that or motivation to do that i think motivation is coming uh the the thing you know i i have been in very different spheres in the last year of my life than i've ever been in before um and so it's it's been very very interesting uh, but you know, I think that for a very long time, people were asleep at the wheel. I think that with Trump, a lot of people didn't understand what was happening. They knew something was wrong and they knew that people were electing a guy like Trump for a reason, but they didn't get why it is. And you can still tell because there's still a lot of these people who are still never Trump, even though they kind of pretended not to be for a while. Uh, and this is not about Trump, to be clear. Like, I have no loyalty to Trump, uh, you know, in the in the sense that, like, he's a great president or he's the like, he is completely unworthy of the movement he has, to be really clear. But that doesn't matter because people are so desperate for the kind of thing that Trump represented that even if he was a weak facsimile of it, they would take it and they, you know, they, and they would lay down in traffic for it at this point. And so I think that, you know, what people are starting to understand is, is that you know, on the very edges of the mainstream is you know, what time it is. Uh, that people who have mainstream platforms, mainstream outlets, uh, who have a lot to lose, uh, are going out and saying things that they would not have said just a few years ago. Uh, things that would have gotten them canceled, things that would have gotten them fired, things that would have gotten them, you know, destroyed in public. And I think that's a that's a good shift. That means people are understanding that the hour is late and you don't have really time to sit around the edge of this this stuff and and pretend like it's not happening. At the same time, I still think there's a lot of cope and there's a lot of, mm. you know, just I don't want to rock this boat. You know, we've been talking about, you know, uh, you know the, the, you know, <laughs> the Democrats are, you know, they're, they're, they're communists and. Uh, you know, the, we've, we've been talking about that kind of stuff for a very long time and there's no need to shift any of that. We, you know, Russia is our eternal enemy. These things are, are things that are just going to continuously kind of, kind of put our older audience to sleep and, and, uh, and make us money. And so we're not going to cross that line. I, I think that there's luckily a lot, a lot less of that than there used to be. I think there are a lot more, uh, big voices that are willing to challenge, uh, than there were before, but it's still an uphill battle. Hmm. So on the, I mean, we, a lot of our constituency uh, here is obviously Christians and there's, um, you know, specific broadly evangelical, uh, you know, Protestant. And, you know, there's been a, a sort of decades ago, an abdication of any kind of national leadership by Protestants. And, uh, you know, we can argue that it was good for that particular aristocracy to die in, in most respects. Um, but there's but, you know, even as a strong I just saw a, a clip from back in 2016 uh, the other day of, of Trump even recognizing, you know, the evangelicals are the, you know, the, the white evangelicals are the largest voting block. You could do whatever you wanted if you if you, you know, had a consciousness in that way, a political consciousness and and took care of business. Um, but it's it seems to me that evangelicals are either so demoralized um, or 
so brainwashed that they they are still at this you know late kind of hour non-assertive um is i mean do you see any signs of life on that side of the spectrum in that particular constituency uh somewhat i mean obviously you see uh the surge of people under the banner of christian nationalism i have my own problems with the christian nationalism not because i disagree with any of its principles but because I think that it's a branding trap designed by uh, our regime, and you know it's it's very obviously going to be used to throw people in gulags. Uh, but uh, you know, I, we we could get into that if you want to. But it, the the very fact that anyone is even showing interest in that is important. For a very long time, evangelicals were convinced that we were going to have like these neutral governing institutions, and that. You know, involving yourself in government power is actually like dirty. It was, you know, Christians didn't do this. You don't get your hands dirty like that. You you let Caesar handle those kind of things. And so, you know, they kind of ended up getting exactly what, what we deserve. Now, in some sense, this is baked in, obviously, you know, the many parts of the evangelical tradition are based on the idea that actually you really shouldn't be involving yourself with a lot of governance. But I think that also just kind of rode on this idea that there would be this a uh, cultural Christian consensus, and you could rely on that, and it didn't need to uh, actually be baked, uh, you know, hired, hardwired into any of your institutional power or your institutional memory. And uh, that that's a lesson that we're going to get to learn uh, real hard. Uh, you know, that, that, that was a complete failure of leadership. If you don't rule, someone else will. If your values aren't the ones being perpetuated, someone else will. Uh, you know, your posterity is not automatic. Uh, you you do not just get to assume, uh, and, and a lot of this does come on honestly from kind of the eschatology of the baby baby boomers. Like they are the mm-hmm. last generation, that, and the, you know they didn't need to worry about history was over. We had we had reached the new millennium, and we, you know if America and Christian America fail, that was just the end of the universe. Like that that could the only way that this could end is is God coming back. Literally, if you talk to most Christian boomers you know evangelical christian boomers they cannot imagine a world where america is not like just the obvious controlled christian superpower and all without like jesus returning like those are the only two options they can't imagine it any other way and so i think that that meant that they abdicated a, a vast amount of their duty of leadership um and uh we're we're gonna have to figure this out real quick because if we don't uh then our enemies are gonna figure it out for us and it's not gonna be great mm. Well, since you raised it, sure. Let's let's do Christian nationalism as well while we're while we're on the topic. I, there's been others. Uh, you know, American Reformer doesn't take a position on the on the label or anything, but we've certainly hosted a lot of the conversation on this. I I myself am perfectly comfortable with the the label, but there's been I think fair critiques um, by others as well, and somewhat along the lines that that you were plugging there um, of whether it's a um, just a branding problem, whether it's a viable uh, movement or, or whatever you want to call it that will that will attract enough energy and participation to actually do anything, you know, so on and so forth. So what are what's your assessment of uh, that particular conversation that's going on on the right right now? Uh, I'll be honest. So the problem is like there's a, there's multiple books. I know Stephen Wolf has one. I know uh, Isker and Torva had one out and and I have not read these, so I'm sure that these, you know, issues have been answered by some of these people in there. So I'm I'm speaking without knowing their arguments, but I'll be honest, I'm buried in a pile of required reading right now, and I just have not gotten gotten to those books yet. Uh, but but my concerns are this: uh, when you look at the uh, what I pay attention to, I think some of the reason that people listen to what I say is that I pay a lot of attention to language and the way that rhetoric is used. And it was just very, very clear, like clear as crystal, that while I know the term Christian nationalism predates our current uh, kind of debate over it, that it was pushed really heavily before it was very popular among any Christians by the media. They they took this and they they started creating this boogeyman of Christian nationalism. And the reason they're doing that is very simple. It sounds like white nationalism. And they recognize that the majority of people who are going to be involved in Christian nationalism are going to be white evangelicals. And so they are trying to tie the idea of Christian nationalism to white nationalism. And they are going to use that to say that any involvement of Christianity in politics, any attempt to 
you know, found our laws or values or standards in Christianity, any attempt to have our uh, institutions reflect Christian values and inculcate them into the next generation is a version of white nationalism. Uh, now they're going to say that no matter what. I want to be really clear. And and I've heard you know Wolf and 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 others say this, and they're right about that. They're going to push this label no matter what. That doesn't mean you have to step directly into this trap. So the, my problem with Christian nationalism is it's obviously been set up by your enemies. The term was chosen by your enemy uh, for a reason. But on top of that, I think there's a deeper problem. Christian nationalism fetishizes what was just American politics. It was just American nationalism. The American nation was always a Christian nation. It was always a Protestant Christian nation from its inception. It was baked into every aspect from the language of the documents to the principles to the culture, the regional cultures, everything about it uh, was soaked in Christian nationalism. And when you use new speak to describe something that's very old, I think you create a problem because uh, it, it makes it sound like it's some kind of cheap political rallying cry. And I'm not tr- trying to decry the people who, mm-hmm. are, who are doing it. I'm not saying they have bad motives or any of this. They have very good motives in general, I think. Uh, but you're you're cheapening what was the true foundation of the nation. You're making it sound trendy and uh, like something that was cooked up in a think tank when it's actually like just the deep roots of uh, of the country. And uh, it also has the problem of not actually addressing also, uh, thirdly, like what a nation actually is. America is a Christian nation, but it is not Christian nationalism any more than like, uh, you know, we're, Ethiopia and Armenia were Christian nations way before the United States. Christianity is a part of what makes the United States the United States. But it is not the entirety. In fact, it's, it's, it's necessary. But it, And please hear me. I'm not saying that Christ is not sufficient or Christianity is not sufficient. But Christianity itself is not sufficient to have a national identity. And so mm-hmm. I think that, uh, again, when people hear this, they think that, like, well, then once we just get everybody Christian, then we'll have a nation. Or once we have kind of a, 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 a return to some kind of Protestant Christian cons- consensus, then we'll have a nation. And it's like, no, actually, nationalism is much more than that. And it's a lot of things that people don't want to talk about. And Christianity is kind of the Mm -hmm. safest thing to talk about. And so we'll just talk about that instead. Yeah, I mean, when I talk to boomers, um, if they're at all aware, you know, it always goes right to revivalism. That's what's going to save us, right? We need revival, everyone to make some kind of credible public profession of faith. and, And if that can't happen, then, you know, nothing can work and there's nothing to do. Um, so that's obviously to be avoided. Um, and I think some people that do even traffic in the Christian nationalist language basically have that in mind um, with a few policy prescriptions like, well, let's get trans stuff out of the schools. And then that's about it. Right. So so it's taken on that kind of, um, you know, hokey, uh, one dimensional uh, approach. Um, but I, I would say I think the the, the latter question, uh, the second question you're raising is isn't important and it's probably what actually you know got steven to uh, or or, you know got steven so much flack from what he wrote because he did try to deal with the the you know what what is a nation what's an ethnicity these sorts of questions which no one wants to do and so that was eye-opening because uh most of the mainstream reviews and those sorts of things were, were entirely negative for that very reason uh because no one's ready to to discuss those more fundamental things that make up a nation, even if there's some, and, you know, then you have the boogeyman of, of theocracy and that's, that's fine. They're going to do that. But no one was really ready, even on our own side to, to do that. And uh, which is depressing. The, the only pushback I would provide is on the, the branding aspect. Um, there's a certain sense in which labels uh, are never really chosen for any kind of insurgency or movement. Um, and they are often given to you by your enemies. And there's, you know, we can get all kinds of examples for that. Um, but if it's galvanizing by its embrace, uh, then, you know, you haven't really chosen it. It may be effective. And you see this with things, you know, we're talking about motivated minorities kind of rule the day. You see, you see this totally with the gay rights movement, right? Um, now we can't replicate that because it's playing on many, many things we would like to destroy, such as victimhood mentality and so on and so forth. But the aspect of pride and embracing being gay and queer as labels that were previously pejorative 
was was actually in, in the in relatively short order a source of strength um, to say we're exactly what you think we are and we're going to parade around and ram it down your throat. Um, now, the, again, the extent to which that is replicable on the right is a big question, um, but it at least doesn't uh, discount the the effort or the maneuver at the outset. That's true. I would say this. The reason that that works for uh, kind of the LGBTQ whatever movement is that it is subversive. And so they mm-hmm. can they can inhabit the monster because that is what they want to be. That is what they want to become. And so they they are dismantling um their it's an entropic movement that gets to dismantle tradition and it gets to embrace subversion in a way the movements on the right don't get to because we're actually uh involved in extropy we're actually looking to uh, mm-hmm. we're we're looking to create something we're 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 looking to create unchallengeable axioms on which we can found uh, the good and the beautiful and the true uh, the, those pillars are are critical to us in a way that they are. Now, I fully embrace or I fully acknowledge that the the horse is probably out of the barn when it comes to Christian nationalism on this one. I think that that is probably just going to be the title no matter what. Um, and so perhaps you know that that's just where we're at. Uh, I'm just I'm just worried. Uh, like I said, that a mm-hmm. lot of people are going to lose. Um, lose the understanding of kind of what it is and what it's connected to and what it really means uh, because of mm-hmm. that. Uh, but you're, you're right that at some point, the friend enemy distinction is simply forged in the fact that uh, enough people hate you collectively. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and that, that might, mm-hmm. that might simply be the reason that that title wins no matter what. Well, it's like the, the meme I saw yesterday going around where the guy was like, I don't, I don't know if God is real, but the fact that the my enemies so badly want me to think he's not ma- means I'm just going to at least accept provisionally that he is. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's just that kind of thing. Yeah. The, the main thing is just not inhabiting the form your enemies want you to take. Uh, that That's mm-hmm. always the danger of of taking on the banner that they've handed you. And, uh, you know, the, Christian nationalism is not, you know, it's not fascism. It's not being a, an edgy Nazi. It's a very different thing. And so I don't think there's the same level of of danger there but i'm just i'm just saying uh by the the by letting your enemy dictate the frame in which your movement is placing itself uh you let them define the parameters on what you're going to mm-hmm. be and the things you're going to choose and the things you're going to discuss and what's going to limit what's going to define you and mm-hmm. uh, and so uh just being aware of that issue and that lack of ownership in certain parts of your identity formation is critical because the media is going to shape most Christian nationalists are going to, let's be honest, have their understanding of the world shaped more by media than by mm-hmm. Stephen Wolf's book. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so they're going to say, I'm a Christian nationalist, and the media told me this is what Christian nationalists are or do or say, and this is how they are defined, and so therefore I am defined that way. Always remember that your movement is going to be uh, turned into the lowest possible revol- resolution of whatever mm-hmm. you created and just be aware of that uh, especially if someone else gets to m- dictate what the majority of people think about what you're doing mm-hmm. yeah i want to you know, hop in and say well, Josh, yeah, hop one in other there. thing on on christian nationalism and you know it is it is you know totally admittedly a, a neologism i mean even the word nationalism um sort of meant one thing in a very particular way if you're talking about 19th century europe right and then it means a very another right. thing in um, in like Yoram Hazoni's telling, uh, which is you know sort of a m- more just sort of articulating the pre-modern idea of the nation to uh, very like sort of mm-hmm. deracinated modern people who who only know how to think in terms of liberal democracy and multiculturalism. So 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 some of that neologistic work is is going on in in this thing, but. I would say in, in Stephen Wolf and some of the other most thoughtful proponents of Christian nationalism, uh, there's sort of an esoteric thing going on, which is it's not so much a call for, you know, a majority of the populace to return, you know, to founding conditions or something like that. Um, it's, uh, I, I think in some cases, esoterically, a a call or a... Um, and, and uh, you know, a siren call toward uh, ethnogenesis, toward the formation of a new type of uh, political consciousness, 
uh, that, that perhaps is um, particularly needed or called for in our current environment where, you know, the constitutional order is sort of obviously breaking down and everybody knows it and we're seeing sort of increased um, factionalism and, uh, you know, in, in such a, you know, similarly at the same time, uh, digital technology uh, enables much more of what you might call tribal dynamics. And so sort of in this new unpredictable world, um, I, I think what the function that Christian nationalism is really playing is uh, trying to awaken uh, political consciousness and sort of plant a flag around which uh, Christians can sort of can sort of gather. Uh, so it's in that sense, it's it's very mm -hmm. future oriented, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it has, I mean, you know, there's other other adjacent, I would say, sort of do, people doing the same thing in that regard that it, that is, you know, I would consider them totally allies. I don't need anyone to adopt the label. Um, you know, I'd say much of what Haywood writes about with his foundationalism as much overlap. And even even um, people that have criticized Christian nationalism on a sort of branding level, like you did, Oren, at the at the beginning of this part of the conversation, um, like our you know our friend and uh, at American Reformer Aaron Wren has has spoken on this, where even though he he thinks the branding is bad, then when he goes on to talk about how Christians need to operate, you know, in his negative world, um, it's it's there is extreme overlap and sort of you know he he'll talk about in a recent speech, you know, Americans need to remove their loyalty from the quote unquote constitutional order and the government structure and the the furthest reaches of the empire and transfer their loyalty to the American people and the American way of life. And they need to work to define that again. Um, you know, that would be a very basic uh, sort of move I would want, you know, Christians to do, whether they consider themselves, you know, they've embraced the label or not. I think that's necessary and implied in both. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, you know, like I said, from the beginning, my problems are not with the prescriptions, uh, you know, yeah. and, and I don't, I would largely probably agree with, with, with most of what is being suggested there. In fact, I also speak about the necessity of that in the, in the total state, you know, Joseph de Maestra is a thinker I pull mm -hmm. from a lot. And he, uh, explained that, you know, constitutions don't make people's people make pe people's make constitutions and that mm -hmm. you, can't you know, the only reason a constitution has any value is that it it's really just the instantiation of a way of being that is uh, already present in a people and so the constitution as we understand it today can't exist it, that, that's the the constitution didn't fail to be clear it, we asked the constitution to do something it was never meant to do that the founders never believed it could do you know the founders told us who the constitution was for it was for a moral and religious people who could live under its dictates, who could, and and at some level, have the the uh, level of virtue and local order necessary to operate under this system. And it was not made for anyone else. And so, the minute we became a different people, the Constitution it couldn't govern us anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, what we've done is mutated over and over and over and over and over again to try to govern the people we've become. But it was never meant to do this. And now we hold it up as some kind of sacred uh, document that was meant to forge us into who we are today. But the, that's exactly the opposite of the way that it should, uh, you know, it should work. And so mm -hmm. I would agree with him entirely that, you know, pledging yourself to the order of what the United States has become is insane because the United States is now made to govern a people entirely different and really a global empire that's entirely different from anything the founders would have envisioned. And so we, we, you know, I would agree with him entirely there. That that's, that's not something we can do. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I mean, it's a weird relationship between, uh, not just constitutions, but, but even, you know, positive law that we, we pass of if, if something's being codified, it means it already exists almost necessarily. And, but in, in, and then it's reinforced, right? So in that sense, culture's downstream of law, you know, you can see this most obviously after Obergefell. But Obergefell was codifying something that was either inevitably going to happen or, or already basically had. Um, and we do this. This is why it's depressing to see us, you know, if our big debates are over trans bathrooms, you've basically already lost because it means that it's a possibility 
and that it's it's something that's already you know you're you're trying to stop because it's already happening um and the same is with you know the, our most basic kind of constitutional order if it it's not reflecting something that already exists and um is arising from that um but is sort of artificially imposed you're naturally going to have tension and uh, and dysfunction it's yeah, almost I, I inevitable think the, the interesting yeah, the, thing about our constitution is just its ability to flex with very different ways in which which power is descriptively actually wielded in society right i mean at our founding um we we purported to have dual sovereignty between states and the federal government um you know and then of course um you know through the events of the the civil war and then especially the 20th century um you know like real descriptive power actually aggregated up at the federal level and then i would say today in times of great federal gridlock um we're seeing in these energetic state level executives uh the ability to have little sovereignty contestations and actually just reaccrue power for themselves and you know the, the remarkable thing is i think that that all of that can sort of happen without like formally breaking the constitution um you know so it's got it's got a lot of flexibility and fluidity to it even as descriptive power actually changes in very meaningful ways i would actually uh disagree with that quite vigorously um <laughs> i think that, uh, I, th <laughs> yeah. I think that uh, like i understand what you're saying i like there there's an argument there but uh, i would say that the united states simply doesn't recognize uh formally when there's been a coup uh, we've had f at least mm. five republics in the United States, but we treat it as one continuous government. We never got rid of the Articles of Confederation. We never actually uh, went mm -hmm. through the process of dissolving them. We simply yeah. uh, we simply pretended like it was okay that our that that uh, different people wrote up an entirely different government and passed it without any formal uh, uh, you know uh, going through the process the, the the formal process of doing so. We did the same thing when it came to uh, the Civil War. Obviously. Um, you know, the, the Civil War was uh, the most old school assertion of, of whether or not you had the right uh, to rule someone. Uh, we did this again with, with several different amendments, the, the FDR revolution. Uh, we did this with the, uh, with the Civil Rights Revolution. We fundamentally changed the way that the United States has, has uh, been governed. And we just haven't acknowledged um, that we just haven't had a constitutional republic in a very, very, very long time. Um, and so I don't know if that's so much to the flexibility of the Constitution as it is to the unwillingness of the American people to kind of relabel their new government. Well, I, look, I, I don't disagree with any of that, Orrin, but I, I, I guess what I would say is notwithstanding all of that, appeals to constitutional legitimacy, and by, by which I mean, you know, written constitutional legitimacy, uh, still really matter in a very real political sense for a leader's uh, sort of acclaim and legitimacy. So to the extent that, you know, Abbott, right, he takes very aggressive action at the border and to the extent that he has a constitutional hook um, that, you know, so he's got the invasion clause in the constitution that really matters for the acclaim of the people that he's able to accrue, which then, sort of gives him the confidence uh to act as a sovereign in a particular case so so it's it's you know the the, the constitution is open enough that different factions can make sort of different claims to legitimacy when they're taking aggressive action underneath it and i think i think w without you know without um sort of expressly disavowing the constitution or wanting to throw it away and i, th I think that's really what i'm getting at with that point yeah, you're you're right that the the fact that we have basically created, uh, and this is why I think there's a lot of uh, there, there's a, a lot of ability for uh, the America to kind of uh, ignore uh, some of the things that's happened uh, is that we really have maintained a, a two story state. Uh, there's a there's a there's a political formula that we give to the right and a political formula that we give to the left, and this is why they can't look at each other like. Uh, this weird inverse reflection whenever they actually try to dialogue because the things that the left believe give the government uh, political legitimacy are entirely different than the things that the right uh, believe mm -hmm. give the government uh, political legitimacy. And so because of that, you're right that like there, there's 
there's still the, the the fact that the constitution is still in some way part of the regime's ruling formula does still give it the the ability of someone like Abbott to go ahead and, and cite that and and have a standing. So I'm not saying that the constitution doesn't matter at all because you're absolutely right that that is that's still a very relevant part of it. Uh, but I'm just saying that uh, I, I think that. Uh, that that's more due to the way that our our ruling our political formulas have split and sectioned themselves off almost entirely from each other than it is necessarily like a particular flexibility of the constitution. But we 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 could uh, be in danger of nitpicking <laughs> that all day. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I th- I mean I think that's basically right. I mean the left is is uh, they wring their hands much less over whether they have a constitutional hook even ostensibly to do much of what they do. They, they just go and do it. Um, and that's why you see um, a, a difference of treatment between what Abbott's doing, which is like the, the flip side of what California has been doing with sanctuary cities for a decade now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's no challenge there and they don't even care. And uh, the entire posture of the Newsom government is they don't care, right? When he's questioned about, did you just clean up San Francisco for G? And he's like, yeah, I did. And he just moves on and no one, you know, really questions this. Whereas when a, when a conservative tries to make moves, um, it's both um, imposed on them by their enemies because they know they're, they have uh, some kind of self-consciousness about it and it's self-imposed, right? They want to do something that's, that's consistent and legal and so on and so forth. And this is just one of the handicaps that we have to deal with. Um, But on the, on the same, in sort of the same vein, I guess this can be sort of the, the last question. Um, there, there are many, you know, proposals or people playing around with proposals out there that would represent sort of for a new future, radical discontinuity with, uh, what we've, what we've had, or at least what we think we've had, um, even culturally, right. And these, and, and so there may be some need for accelerationism there so that you can, uh, pull something out of the ashes. On the other hand, um, I, I seem to think, or tend to think that you need some, um, historic and cultural continuity for what you're doing, at least in your appeals to it. Um, you know, Montesquieu will talk about any any laws or any changes in policy which are necessarily violent, because uh, that's what change is. Have to have to suit uh, the people, at least in their memory, their like historic memory. And so this is why appeals to the founding or to uh, you know some of our history are are powerful and needed and maybe actually good. Do you, do you have any opinion on the extent of uh, necessary continuity for for change. Yeah, no, I I think that that is is absolutely correct. Again, I when I was what I was pointing out was not that there needs to be historical continuity. Uh, that that's absolutely the case. Uh, there has to mm-hmm. be continuity if you're going to create any kind of understanding of of a people, any kind of uh way that way to uh understand what what the nation would be or what what the people would be it has to be grounded in that tradition it has to be continuous from you know how people understand the united states at least at at some level uh that's absolutely necessary my my point in continuity was strictly like the legal Mm -hmm. regime not not the the story of the people in fact i think we the thing we've really hit on here repeatedly is the importance of separating the people from the legal regime um, yeah. And th- yeah. that that that's the thing that is probably the most important because the what the legal regime has become is something so desperately different from what America was uh, that it's unrecognizable to anyone who has who wants to have any historic continuity. Uh, it's impossible to square the current regime with any kind of historical continuity of, of kind of the American identity. Uh, and that's really the thing right. that I think we're we're trying to tackle there. Yeah. In in which case, you know, America's inability or refusal to recognize coups when they happen, um, regime changes, you know, radical reinterpretation of the constitutional order and and indeed the history, you know, Lincoln is probably the most expert with this. Um, even if FDR was in some ways more effective in his, in his coup, Lincoln's was in, in terms of its rootedness ostensibly in history was completely radical in reinterpretation. Um, but that that it could actually be a a strength or a good thing uh, because it means it's possible. You can um, project continuity, or rather than continuity, it's sort of becoming what we more of what we already are is kind of the idea. Uh, we're we're achieving you know our truer selves is, is how it's always been done and actually uh, you know can be done again potentially. 
Yeah, I think that's right. Becoming what you were uh, or what you were supposed to be is always a very compelling thing uh, for people. Mm-hmm. And and they and again, that is what the right is doing. Right, we, the, the left is deconstructing. We we are not. We are we are we are finding the pillar of what uh, we are as a people, and we're trying to stand on top of it. And that's that's really the the critical nature of of the the quest for <laughs> for kind of putting things together or forging something new is to stand on, on what was and say, you know, we, we are going to become more of that thing. And that's oh, to be fair, like how, how kind of the current civil rights regime got where they are. Right. Because, well, mm-hmm. really the constitution always meant to just give people as many rights as possible. And so by giving people as many freedoms and as many rights as possible, we're really just becoming more of what America was. Uh, but we, you know, we need to be clear like that that is not actually what America was, that the, the America was not just the number of constitutional amendments it can uh, create and the number of rights it can accrue to people, uh, that it was something much different and much more uh, and, and grounded in something far more powerful. Uh, and that that's the story that really, I think, is uh, is the one that you need to understand and, and tell people. Mm-hmm. Well, Oren, this has been great. We're coming up um, on time. I think we could we could easily go on and on. Um, Josh, any parting thoughts, and then we'll give Oren the last word. Uh, thank you for joining us, Oren. Um, you know, love love your stuff and your work. Uh, audience, you need to be following Oren on Twitter and listening to his show and buying his book. Um, I think uh, so many of the basic realities that you talk about are things that we need mass acceptance on our side. Uh, in order to be effective for the future. So thank you for all your work. Thank you for joining us today. No, thank you, man. I really appreciate it. It's been great talking to you guys. Excellent. So the the book, again, comes out on May 7th. I assume if they're not already available, pre-orders will be available soon. Um, and uh, we look forward to uh, to seeing the reaction and reception of that. I'm sure it'll be a lot of fun. Maybe not for you, but for the rest of us. <laughs> um but thanks again for joining us and everyone, you know, subscribe to the podcast so you can, if you don't miss any of our episodes, follow us on Twitter and, uh, and look for our you know, daily content on the website also. Um, until next time, God bless. You can find American Reformer on the internet at www.americanreformer.org or on x.com formerly Twitter, at AMReformer. Don't forget to like, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Please consider supporting us today by making a tax-deductible donation through our secure online donation portal at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org.